0: Well, what a blessing um, <clears throat> service it already has been, uh, singing one of my favorite hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It is always great to not just read Luther, but sing his words to our God. Prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, one little word of God shall fall Satan, the devil himself. I'm just uh, stirred by that hymn. I thank the worship team for leading us into that. Thank you, Jung, for your God honoring testimony. We thank God for you and for your family and the child to come. Look forward to uh, Elizabeth and Anna having a little sister uh, in Christ to play with in the future. And um, just a few announcements. Uh, April 27th, we'll be having a special missions offering for. Um, our summer missions teams—we're sending two teams this summer: one team to Czech Republic and one team to Ireland. Encourage you guys to save up for that. The posters from our retreat—the auctions concluded yesterday, and I'm a proud winner of one of those auctions. So if you visit my home, you'll see a laminated copy on my wall soon. Well, let's get to our study this morning. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, 37 through 47. If you've been counting, this is our fifth sermon in this chapter alone. I believe we will conclude this chapter next week with our sixth study. And again, we are still in the midst of a period in our Lord's ministry that is popularly called the period of Controversy. A period of controversy. Controversy surrounding our Lord's identity. His relationship with the law, particularly the Sabbath. That's how it all started in chapter 5. His condemnation of the leaders of Israel. It's been intensifying. It's been increasing. And it will reach its height in the last verses of chapter 8. All along, the Jewish leaders had just plotted to kill Christ. Not the end of chapter 8, they mean business. They're re- ready to execute judgment and murder God's own son. Now, we just had, in the past weekend, our government's shock and awe bombing of Baghdad. Uh, well, verses 37 through 47, in a spiritual sense, it's the same thing. The truths that are found in this passage, it's this bombardment of spiritual truth. After studying it, you will have an experience much like myself. One of shock and awe at the truths that are declared by our Lord. This passage reveals some shocking and almost near unbelievable truths. With thunderous declarations, our Lord discloses truths that are so radical, I mean, so politically incorrect to say the least, that I'm, a, I'm at a loss for words. I was talking to my wife this whole week. I felt like I'm chasing a dragon, studying this and At the same time, I'm being chased by this dragon. Because the truth is so overwhelming. I will contend that these are, arguably, the most controversial statements that you will find in all of the Bible. You will be hard-pressed to find a passage so loaded with such controversial truths. I mean, I had difficulty this whole week just taking it in. Spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, I'll telling the guys before the service, I can't wait till 1130 I just want to get it out. It's been hanging on my heart, hanging on my soul. It's overwhelming. It's just fire shut up in my bones. I want to just unload and just, just let it out. Because it is so powerful within me. I mean I thought to myself again and again, how can I teach this text? I have great difficulty just taking it in. Just just wrapping my mind around it. How can I teach this, this truth? You know I thought what would it be like if if I went on lyricing live and read John eight thirty seven through forty seven if I told them you're all slaves to sin? You have no place in your hearts for God's word. Your father is Satan. Your will is to obey Satan's desires? I mean, forget about Larry King's response. Imagine the phone calls that would come in. Shocking. And yet, here is our Lord. In the strongholds of Jewish religion. In Jerusalem. In the temple of God. Surrounded by thousands of people. Pharisees, scribes, he's in view of the meeting room of the Sanhedrin and the court of women, and yet our Lord, in the center of controversy, in the eye of the storm, pulls no punches. He declares these truths without shame. Well, let's look at the context really quickly. Again, starting with chapter 7. Um, our Lord, verse, chapter 737, our Lord is now still on the last day of that great feast, Feast of Tabernacles. And He has made some incredible teachings, talking about He is the living water. Chapter 8, verse 12, He is the light of the world. Last week we studied the three marks of genuine discipleship, abiding in the words of Christ. Knowing tr- truth, meaning having a relationship with the living Christ. and third, being set free from sin. And seemingly, in verse 30, there is a breakthrough. Seemingly, some people get it. Lights come on. The doors are open, or some people in the crowds profess faith in Him. Jesus answers them that they're slaves to sin, that they're slaves that truth will set them free. And here is their response. Verse 33, They answered Him, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? In verses 34 through 36, we studied this last week, our Lord answered their second claim that they have never been enslaved to anyone. Our Lord says, Indeed you have, enslaved by sin. Starting from verse 37, our Lord starts off by repudiating their claim of being the children of Abraham. In verses 37-40, through our Lord contradicts and rebukes and corrects. He arbitrarily rejects, based upon the word of God, their claim as being the descendants or spiritual descendants of Abraham. They claim this in verse 33. They claim it again in verse 39 when they say Abraham is our father. Now this is significant. For the faithful Jew, Abraham is one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament. He's like our George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, FDR rolled into one. It was a common phrase for Faithful Jews to say Abraham Avinu, meaning Abraham, our dear father. This is how God identified himself to his own people. Remember in Exodus 3.15, Moses was going to, to, uh, Egypt, represent God, and how did he identify God? God of Abraham. Is Isaiah 41.8? God says, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. God calls Abraham my friend. It was their heartfelt boast that this friend of God, this man who was closely identified with Yahweh, that they were the true descendants. True descendants of Abraham. Well, they they said this because there was much debate in that area concerning who the real descendants of Abraham were. Abraham, if you didn't know, had eight sons through three women. Through his first wife, Sarah, he had Isaac. With the mistress that Sarah provided, Hagar, he had Ishmael. With his second wife, Keturah, Genesis 25-2, he had six sons. Israelites were saying, we're not descendants from Ishmael. We're not descendants through Zimram, Jokshan, Midian, Ishbak, or Shuah. That was hard to say, right? No, we are descendants from Abraham through the child of promise who is Isaac. He was promised in Genesis 17, 19 that Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And they traced their lineage to Isaac and through Isaac to Abraham. Therefore, it was their boast, their claim to fame, their spiritual superiority, that they were descendants of Abraham. But our Lord dismissed their claim. He acknowledged, yes, you are the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac. But you are not their spiritual descendants. Our Lord made it undeniably clear that they are not the spiritual offspring, spiritual children of Abraham. How? By their response to Christ, the promised one. Verse 39, second part, Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Here, our Lord is saying, is the decisive test. Natural descent counts for nothing. It is a spiritual relationship with God. That is the issue. Our Lord, for the sake of argument, assumes, okay, for a moment, let's assume that you are spiritual descendants of Abraham. If that were true, then you would do what Abraham did. If you are truly sons of Abraham, you would pattern your life after your spiritual father. Now we gotta ask our question. Lord said you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? His heart was wide open to the word of God. Now consider these religious leaders. They had no room for God's word in their hearts. Abraham, Genesis 12.1, God said, leave your father's land and go to a land that I will show you. Hebrews 11.8 says, he didn't know where he was going. When he started, and it's actually Iraq, modern day Iraq, rule of Chaldees. When you left God told him maybe day by day, weeks at a time, where he'd be going. He had no idea where he would end up. But his heart was so wide open to God's Word, he took it all in. He submitted himself to the Word of God. Not these leaders of Israel. Remember Genesis 22, when God told him to sacrifice his only son, the son he loved. The first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible, it's between Abraham's love for his son Isaac, sacrifice your son. What does Abraham do next morning? Before dawn, he gets up, calls his servants, packs his bag, takes his son Isaac, makes a three days journey to Moriah modern-day Jerusalem, to sacrifice his son. Why? Because God told him, Thus saith the Lord. For Abraham, God's word was truth. It was to be obeyed. His heart was open, a fertile ground for the word of God. Now, if these men were the true spiritual descendants of Abraham, they would have the same response to the word of God. But it's exactly the opposite. Their hearts are hardened. They have a stubborn refusal to receive God's word. They have no room. In fact, the, Hebrew, the Greek idea is no entrance. The word of God—it's like concrete, right? Even we can't go. There's no cracks. <clears throat> no way for the word of God to enter because it is so hardened. It is first evidence that they are not the true children of Abraham. Second evidence is their hatred towards the Messiah, their intent, their purpose, their efforts to kill him. This is not what Abraham did. In fact, when anyone came as an emissary of God, Abraham welcomed them, received them. Look down a few verses to verse 56. Christ said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Remember Genesis 22. God provided a substitute sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket. And that was a substitute that would replace his own son's death on the altar. Abraham called that place Peniel and said, the Lord will provide. And he looked up and he looked across history into the future. And that day, when he declared that the Lord will provide an alternate sacrifice, he saw by faith, he saw Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes with the sins of the world. And that day, he rejoiced. It, didn't, it hadn't happened yet. It was thousands of years away. But that day, he was full of joy. Because he saw by faith what God would do. Hebrews 11.13 All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance and they welcomed them from a distance. Abraham saw Christ and he was joyous. But not these religious leaders. You know, that joy of seeing Christ is beautifully pictured in Luke chapter 2. A story familiar to all of us, I believe. Remember that old man in the temple? God had told him the redemption of Israel. He would see it with his own eyes. He would see the Messiah, the constellation of Israel. And here comes baby Jesus. On the eighth day, he is come to be circumcised and presented at the temple of God. And Simeon took him in his arms, Luke 2.28. And he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon says, I can die now. I've seen the promise of God in my own eyes. Simeon was a true spiritual descendant of Abraham, unlike these men. Another one, John one forty seven. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. What is he saying? Here is a true descendant of Abraham. Because Nathaniel welcomes me. Nathaniel receives me. His heart is open to my word. He's not seeking to kill me. He doesn't hate me. He sees me as the Messiah. He embraces me. Here is a true Israelite. Such men and women in the time of Christ... We're true spiritual descendants of Abraham. And this is true today. Turn with me to Galatians 3, 7, 6 and 7. And we will see it's the same today. How can you know if you're an offspring of Abraham or not today? How can you tell if you're a spiritual descendant of Abraham? Is your heart open to the Word of God? When you hear of Christ, do you hate Him? Are you offended by His words? Or do you welcome Him? Do you love Him? Listen to what Paul says, Galatians 3, 6, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. Look down at verse 29. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are also true spiritual descendants of Abraham through Christ. We who trust in God for our righteousness, those of us who receive, obey, and submit to the word of God, those of us who are Christians who love and worship Jesus Christ, we are the true children of Abraham, and Jesus is telling them, if you were true children of Abraham, you would imitate his conduct, you would love my word, you would welcome me, but your works are the exact opposite. Your works are exact opposite. Go back to John chapter 8, verse 41 you're not doing what Abraham did verse 41 you are doing what your father did. Now okay at this point I mean our Lord is setting them up. you're not doing what your your, your claim Abraham you're not doing what Abraham did but you're doing what your father did it doesn't identify who this father is. Note their response, they misunderstand. They think he's going back to Ishmael again. Hagar. We were not born of sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneas. From pornography, fornication, sexual adultery. They're defending themselves and saying, "No, No, 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 we're not from Ishmael. Yes, we understand. Hagar was a mistress. She was not his legitimate wife. And children of Ishmael, descendants, are children of immorality. That's not us. We're from the pure lineage. Going back to Isaac. And then they proceed. They step it up a notch. right? They proceed to claim the highest spiritual authority. They say, we are not just children of Abraham. We are the children of God. Verse 41. We have one Father. Even God, which is God. That is God. Well... Our Lord repudiated their claim of being the children of Abraham. Secondly, He demonstrates that God is not their father. God is not the father. Same argument. Verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Here is a direct In plain refutation that God is their father. If they were children of God, they would love Christ. But they did not love Christ. Though He was the image of the invisible God, the brightness of His glory, the express image of God's personhood, they despised Him, they rejected Him, because they were bond slaves of sin, they had no place in their hearts for God's word, they sought to kill Him. Therefore, their boast was an empty one. Their very actions, their attitude, undermined their boast that God is their Father. First John 5.1 Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. John 15.23 Our Lord said, He who hates me hates my Father as well. First Corinthians sixteen twenty two. Therefore, Paul says, If anyone does not love our Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. Same argument. Your father is not Abraham by your deeds. Your father is not God by your deeds. And here we go. Here is that shock and awe declaration of our Lord in verse forty four. Here he discloses in plain language the true identity, the true identity of their father. You are of your father, the devil. You are children of Satan. I mean, they are so lost. They are not misinformed. They don't, they're not just sincere and have just few facts wrong. They're so far from the truth. They're not even in the same ballpark. You're not spiritual descendants of Abraham. You're not children of God. The truth is, your father is Satan. Now, who is Satan? Satan first appears in the oldest book of the Bible, in the book of Job. I mean, for... The first account of Satan is his uh, accusing Job, afflicting Job, in chapter 1 of Job. He is the one who tempted Eve into sin in the Garden of Eden. The Bible clearly and consistently represents Satan as being an enemy both of God and man. The fundamental moral description of Satan is that he is the evil one. Matthew 13, 19, contrasted with Isaiah's description of God, Isaiah 1, 4, as God is the Holy One. He's the opposite. God is the Holy One. Satan is the evil one. What are the acts of Satan, the deeds of Satan? Isaiah 14, 12, it was pride of Lucifer that caused him to be cast down. Matthew 4.3, he has the audacity to tempt Jesus. He is the prince of demons, Matthew 12.24. You know, all the false doctrines in the world, you know, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Atheism, Gnosticism, secular humanism, Buddhism, he is the one who instigates all false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.1-6. He is the one who perverts the word of God, Matthew four four. He is the one who deceived Judas. Judas is completely culpable, but yet he is the one who led Judas to betray Christ, John thirteen twenty seven. When we go out preaching the gospel and people don't see it, people can't understand it, they can't discern truth. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is the one who blinds people spiritually. John 12.31, he is the prince of this world. Revelation 12.9, he is the deceiver. Our Lord said, this man, this one, is your father. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Going back all the way, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve are deceived, sin enters the world, it seems like it is hopeless, mankind is ruined, and yet in Genesis 3.15, here we see the Proto-Evangelion, a fancy word for first gospel. Where is the gospel in the Old Testament? It is in the first book, chronologically, In the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Our Lord here established perpetual enmity. A constant war. Between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. The serpent will strike at the offspring of the woman's heel. But the woman's offspring will not be destroyed. Instead, the woman's offspring will crush Satan's head. Now, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, who is that? It's Christ. This is where the Jewish leaders got their interpretation wrong. Who is the offspring of Satan? Our Lord tells us in John eight forty four. Who are the children of Satan? The seed of Satan? All who are outside of Jesus Christ. We were all there once. All Christians, we were once there. If you're a non Christian today, you're a child of the devil. That's the reality, the spiritual reality of those who are outside of Christ. 1 John 3, eight, He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Verse 10 This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This throws away that idea that we are all God's children. this total refutation of the idea that the brotherhood of man, the whole world, we're all brothers, hands across the world, right? No. The Bible says, there are two races of people, children of God, and children of Satan. Go back to John 8.44 with me. Our Lord says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will, your thalos, your disposition, your will, your mind, your purpose in your life is for one thing. is to do your father's lust, epithemia, your father's cravings, Satan's appetites. That's the, that's the purpose of your existence. What are Satan's lusts? What are the desires of Satan? Two things, murder and lying. He's identified as a murderer. Our Lord tells us from the beginning, day one, he was a murderer. You know, I don't know why I missed this. I read the Bible several times, Genesis several times. It was not until I studied this passage, I realized what Satan was trying to do in Genesis 3. Yes, he was trying to promote rebellion. Yes, he was trying to deceive Eve. Yes, he was trying to bring sin to this world. For what purpose? Murder. He wanted to kill Adam and Eve. God said they could eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden except for one tree of knowledge is good and evil. If you eat that, you will die. Satan told them you will not die. You will become like God. Satan deceived them. Why? To kill them, to murder them. Now, why does Satan want want to murder people? Because we are created in the image of God. Satan's hatred for God is such that he wants to kill everything, everyone that bears the image of God. He can't bear the sight of man. That's why sin entered the, the world. Because he knew death will come to all those who are created in God's image. That's why when any, anyone dies, it's the act of Satan. It is a fruit of his deed. And that is why when Christ came in flesh, incarnate, and Satan knew, Satan knows the Bible, that his death will result in our salvation, Satan couldn't hold himself back. His hatred was such that he had to murder Christ because he hates God. Not only is he a murderer from the beginning, his essential identity is one of a liar. Verse 44, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's speaking, literally, is, he's speaking his native tongue. That's his uh, first language, Lying. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is the father of every, every lie. <clears> the <throat> first lie recorded in the Bible, Genesis 3, 4, spoken by Satan. His primary power is his ability to deceive. He deceived Adam and Eve. He, remember, he deceived First Chronicles 21. He deceived David to count, to get a census of his army. Remember Judas? He deceived to betray Christ. Remember Ananias, Sapphira, Acts 5? What did he do? He deceived them to lie to the Holy Spirit and they were killed that day. His principal authority, he's his the father of false doctrine. His principal strategy is deception, it's error. He is preeminently the deceiver. That is why they don't that's why they're the children of Satan. That is why non Christians do not believe in Jesus when he's speaking the truth. Because he's first forty five. Because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. They believe liars. When Deepak Chopra comes out and rants and raves about all these spiritual, mystical lies, where's the authority? He just makes it up. It's arbitrary. People in mass, bestseller, they pay hundreds of dollars to go to his conference. Why? Where did he get this from? It's just arbitrary. He made it up. Because they accept lies. But But when Jesus told the truth, they will not accept it. Not only will they not accept truth, they will not accept truth from a sinless one. Verse 46. Here is someone who is sinless. He appears before his enemies and he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Convicts meaning, which one of you can bring a charge and indict me, prove that charge, that I'm guilty of any sin? Now in that crowd, there were people from Galilee. There were people from his hometown. People from his own synagogue. People who maybe his teachers... His principles, right? Our, our, you know, our context, right? People in his neighborhood. I mean, what man can publicly declare that he was Christ? I am the guiltless one. I am the sinless one. I am sinless. Why do you not believe in me? The Bible declares our Lord is holy and perfect, blameless, completely righteous. 2 Corinthians 5:21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. He had no sin. Hebrews 4:15. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 7:26. Such a high priest meets our needs. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. First Peter 2.22, he committed no sin and no, no deceit was found in his mouth. Even though the sinless one, the perfect holy one is standing there telling them the truth. They will not believe it because they are children of Satan. Well, you know the, the ripple effects of this truth It's huge. It can be applied to so many areas of our lives, of our Christian lives. I mean, I I really hope that the Holy Spirit will bring this bear upon our hearts and help us to um, tie the knots together. Apply these truths to various areas. And one, one thing I was thinking about is marrying an unbeliever. For a Christian to even contemplate marrying a non-Christian, and lot of this. If you're a child of God, how can you marry a child of Satan? It's, it's maybe an inappropriate illustration, but it's like uh, George Bush's daughter. What's her name? You know, marrying Uday and Kusei, one of those guys. <laughs> right? What? What are you doing? Right? That's the same thing. I mean, those are implications that I hope that God, the Holy Spirit would impress upon your hearts in every area of your life. I just want to impress upon just three areas um, of application. First of all, it teaches us that the division between believers and unbelievers is unbridgeable by man. That it is impossible for a man apart from Christ to be saved. It is not difficult. It is impossible. Completely two separate origins. So when I consider the modern day seeker-sensitive movement, user-friendly church, where they do fireworks, dramas, dance presentations, and they shorten the Word of God They don't preach clearly, preach powerfully, boldly, and faithfully. That tells me they don't understand the chasm that separates children of God and children of Satan. Non-believers are not just wrong about a few areas. They don't need more information. It's not their seekers and they don't have answers. Don't we believe the Bible when it says that they're enslaved to sin? They're slaves. Only Christ the Son can set them free. Don't we believe that they're children of Satan and Satan will not let them go? Don't we understand that they're in darkness and only the Word of God has power to save them? Secondly, (laughs) these verses from John 8, once and for all, destroy the idea of free will of man. Outside of Christ, no man has free will. John 8.34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Verse 37, my word finds no place in you. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They can't even bear to listen, to receive the word of God. Verse 44, your father is the devil. Verse 47, the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And maybe I'll post it on our website. But there's an article by R.C. Sproul called "The Pelagian Captivity of the Church." I think it's a must-read for Christians. It is a spin-off from Luther's article, Luther's book, "The Babylonian Captivity of the Church." Remember when Babylon came to Judah and took captive Israel? And Luther was using that Old Testament uh, historical event and highlighting it to his day when the gospel was taken over by Babylon. This corrupt system of Roman Catholicism and how the church has been taken captive by that. Well, Sproul spins off that and he says, the Christian church today, the evangelical Christian community in America, in the world, has been taken captive by the Pelagian movement. Pelagian movement. What is the Pelagian movement? It goes back to the fifth century. A contemporary of Augustine was a man named Pelagius. He believed that man that Adam committed the original sin, but it was not passed down to, to the human race. He believed every man was born pure and he had free will to choose God or choose sin. the church you In unity, condemned it as heresy. It denied original sin. It denied salvation by faith alone. I mean, it denied all the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Well then, this false doctrine took a little spin called semi-Pelagianism. And the idea is, okay, sin has contaminated everyone. But in every person, there is an island of righteousness a remnant, a vestige of free will. It's small, right? Smaller than maybe Hawaii, but it's there, right? And in that small island, man has life, and he can choose to follow God or follow sin. And I don't know if you've heard these illustrations or not. Sproul uses them. I think they're they're worth repeating. Where the illustration is is a man who's drowning, and he's going down for the third time, and God wants to save this man and he, throw, but the, he throws his life raft right on top of the man. But <laughs> the man to be saved, he still needs to put his finger around the life raft, then he is saved. How about the other illustration? You're a person who, is, who, has, a, 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 who has a sickness, a lethal sickness, and God pre- presents to you the gospel, this medicine, but the man must exercise his free will and take that medicine. Only if he, by his free will, takes that medicine, he is a Christian. He is saved. Sproul says no. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that men outside of Christ are not going down for the third time. They're in the bottom of the ocean. They've been down there for 20 years. Right? The fish have eaten them up. Right? You can't identify the body. Even DNA, right? uh, matching teeth won't help. Because the person is dead, we're not sick outside of Christ. We were dead. We've been dead. We're a corpse. We're a lifeless body. No amount of medicine, or steroids, or whatever is going to help this man who's been dead for years. I hope we are convinced thoroughly from John chapter eight, this passage, this idea of free will idea that we have the freedom to choose God or choose man, or choose God or choose sin. No, we are enslaved to sin. And finally, these verses from John 8, once and for all, <coughs> affirm and prove that salvation is first and last all by God. Because every Christian here, that was us. We were children of Satan. We were enslaved to sin. These verses are precious because they tell us we didn't save ourselves. We didn't cooperate with God. We didn't do anything to save ourselves. Even place our hands on the wrath, the life, life raft. Even take that medicine. Nothing. We didn't do anything to warn our salvation. Not only that, there was nothing in us worthy to be saved. We were undeserving of God's grace. In fact, we were unlovable. We were siding with the enemy. We're in a hopeless situation, enslaved by sin, no room for God's word, children of darkness, and yet God, by His own good pleasure, He saved us, He rescued us, and redeemed us. Let me read to you what Charles Spurgeon says. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a heart iron. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had come some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, I thought, and then I asked myself, how did I come to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How did I come to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment... I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my salvation completely to God and God alone. Our Father, we we are shaken by these truths. These truths, though as believers we know truth, they are foreign to us. Because they are so removed from our daily experience. As we live in this world, we hear peace, peace, safety, safety, all is well. And yet the word of God through your son Jesus Christ reveals a true state of the war that is occurring in the heart of men. That the chasm that separates the world with you. And Lord, we are shaken to see how close we came to eternal perdition, eternal death, eternity in hell. And yet by your grace from first to last, you saved us. You rescued us. You gave us life. You forgave our sins and You did it all and You will one day glorify us to Your kingdom. So Lord, these truths produces in us just humility, just brokenness, knowing that we didn't do anything, we didn't deserve it, we're not more righteous than anyone. It is by grace alone You saved us that it produces in us such humility. Lord, it is my prayer that humility would create in us a greater boldness to proclaim the gospel. May we imitate our Father. May we imitate our Lord. His courage in the face of His enemies. Proclaiming truth and letting the chips fall where they may. Lord, knowing the desperate state that men are in. Bondage to sin. Children of Satan. Lord, maybe herald these truths, proclaim these truths loudly and clearly and faithfully, knowing that they don't have the freedom to choose you, that salvation is of the Lord, that you are the Lord of the harvest, that you will save through the gospel, that we will do this in season and out of season. Lord, we thank you for these truths. May it take root in our hearts. And transform us in our inner man. Pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.